back again for another week of Securiosity. But first, we've been talking about DC Cyber Week, and we have an event before that, actually. New York Cyber Week is a festival that brings together thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to exchange big ideas and collaborate to solve the most critical cyber challenges. Your complimentary week-long pass includes access to numerous conferences, parties, hackathons, roundtables, and other events. Sign up as an individual, bring your team, host your own event. Let's get together and talk about cybersecurity. Uh, Community events are at the heart and soul of New York Cyber Week, and this is your chance to meet the top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Sign up for as many events as you can and get the most out of the week. It will take place September 16th to the 20th. For more information, check out nycyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for July 26th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. The NSA is reorganizing, encryption has cops complaining, and Equifax is going to be cutting a lot of checks. We're going to talk about it all. In our interview, we talk with Dust Identity CEO, Afir Gatan, who, if you listened to us last week, you heard that Dust uses synthetic diamonds to protect supply chain. We talked to Ophir on how he came up with the idea. Really, really interesting conversation. Uh, Glad he was able to hop on board, but let's get to this week's news. The National Security Agency is creating a cybersecurity directorate to improve the distribution of signal intelligence as part of the effort to stifle cyber threats from foreign adversaries. The directorate will aim to help the NSA provide better information to intelligence agencies and companies working in critical infrastructure sectors. Ann Newberger will run the directorate after serving as a co-chair of a task force meant to thwart election security threats from Russia. Greg, what does this mean going forward for the NSA? So uh, the NSA is really hunkering down on integrating cybersecurity into everything that they do. And what I mean by that is, look, everybody knows the the NSA is like the elite level government hackers and they go out and, and do their thing. But... Think about all of the work that they do in terms of working with the military or working with other government clients or other pieces of the intelligence community. A lot of the things that they have been doing, they feel like they need to reorganize and bake cybersecurity into every process that they have. Now, why do they need to do this? I don't know. Let's think about some of the things that have happened, i.e. the shadow brokers. That was an entire tool set that was dumped out there that was just used. Um, and, and we've seen it proliferate, whether it is from internal Eternal Blue and, and how that has been co-opted in some of the biggest hacks or biggest incidents security-wise that we've seen. Um, I think that the, the thinking is that, okay, in every facet of what we do moving forward – there needs to be cybersecurity baked in, whether it is from the, the development of the tools to the sharing of the tools mm-hmm. to the communications. Everything needs to have uh, cybersecurity baked into it. And it can't just be the way that it has been set up in years past where it's the offensive side of the house and the defensive side of the house, where the defensive side of the house is protecting everything out there. Well, no, the defensive side of the house also needs to protect the offensive side of the house because obviously there are things that needed to be uh, protected. So I think that's where they're coming from with this. And it's really interesting in that 
Um, not only do they have their leadership uh, and, and Newberger picked out, but uh, we had a story that they're starting to fail out like the the other leadership. Like Neil Ziering, who ran, uh, he was the technical director for capabilities, is going to be their technical director. A really smart technical dude uh, when it comes to setting up all this um, cybersecurity stuff. Um, Dave Frederick, who was the NSA's chief of strategic counter cyber operations, he's going to be the deputy director for the swing. And they're trying to move as fast as possible possible when it comes to pulling in personnel that are going to staff up for this. I mean, they uh, announced this this week, but there are four employees currently right now, and they're going to move to pull from other areas to try to fill that in. But right now it's not filled in. So this is something that is very, very iterative. And that's not something you see in government uh, a lot when something is stood up. There, right. there tends to be you know, a little bit more in terms of personnel and staffing that goes into it, at least before it's publicly announced. So they are trying to move fast and move iteratively. And this is, you know, something that is uh, really, really interesting to watch as I, I think this is a key thing for General Nakasone moving forward is that we, we need to totally not only reorganize the departments, but reorganize the thinking that goes into the the projects or, or the work that needs to be done in cybersecurity needs to be baked into it at every facet of, of every program. So going to be interesting to see how this works moving forward because it reminds me of the NSA 2-1 reorganization that happened in 2016, or at least it calls back to that. I know that that was a disaster, at least from a morale perspective. One of our biggest stories right out of the gate when we launched CyberScoop was that we ran a story where a bunch of um, NSA people talked to us about the reorg and how it was awful for morale under Mike Rogers. So this is like a reorg of a reorg a little bit. And I oh, think that this is this has um I think that this has sort of set the 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 path in, in the right direction for getting past the the disaster that NSA two one was. So I mean we've been talking about Washington Security forever. Any noise around um, their co chief leaving for this? Um, there hasn't been any noise necessarily of a negative sense until a couple weeks ago. It was called the Russia Small Group because it was just so focused on Russia trying to sure. get into elections. They've changed the name of that now, and I believe it's called the Election Security Group now, where it's, oh, okay, it's not just Russia that we're worried about. We need to be worried about Iran. We need to be worried about North Korea. We need to be worried about anything from the future if any country decides to go rogue and want to do this disinformation and poke around in the democratic process. What are we going to do to stop that? So that's growing and uh, the focus has grown a little bit. Um, I don't think that Anne is going to be like dual hatting and, and doing the cybersecurity directorate and the election security group now. So uh, um it's going to be interesting to see how, how that sort of works. But I, I know that that election security group is also expanding Got as it. well. Okay. Interesting. So earlier this week, U.S. Attorney General William Barr urged technology companies to preserve law enforcement's ability to access encrypted communications during a speech at Fordham University. Barr struck a familiar and, I will say, tired theme, refreshing a long-standing complaint from U.S. authorities about how messaging apps like WhatsApp and Signal are immune to traditional forms of wiretaps, which help police monitor suspects around the world. Barr pointed to an unnamed Mexican drug cartel, which he said recently started using WhatsApp to bring fentanyl into the U.S. and coordinate the murder of Mexican police officers, among other examples. He was quoted as saying these costs will grow exponentially as the deployment of warrantproof encryption accelerates and criminals become emboldened. Then 
After he spoke, security practitioners talked about their long-standing stance on this, that police can, can collect other forms of evidence, such as metadata, and that strong encryption is one of the few ways of protecting communications from hackers. Jen, are you as bored and as tired with this line of reasoning as I am? I'm not sure why you'd want to ever publicly say that it's hard to um, figure out what is happening in WhatsApp and, and other things like that, because there's all kinds of people that aren't that intelligent that don't know that. And that that is the point that intelligent people have made. They have said, why do we need to sacrifice security on these messaging apps when there are so many people out there that don't understand how this stuff works exactly. and we yeah. can take advantage of that from a law enforcement perspective. I am not, a, a lot of the time, a lot of the, 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 the knock on people who argue against letting law enforcement is that, oh, you just don't want cops to do their job. And that's, I, I, I find that to be extremely disingenuous. I want cops to be able to go after anybody that is violating the law, but within Absolutely. their rights. Like if a, a child predator is using signal, I like, like go after the, the child predator. You should not have to sacrifice the entire ecosystem of messaging apps to go after one child predator. There are ways around it. There are go get warrants, go get metadata, like go do what the the legal apparatus has set up for you already, instead of talking about trying to backdoor signal or backdoor WhatsApp. Right. Like I just find it to be incredibly lazy. Cops, the attorney general's not a stupid man. He knows he has the legal ability to do that. He just wants to make it easier. That's all this is about, is it's just making it that much easier for cops to do their work. They already have the, 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 the legal ramifications to do their work. They just want to make it as easy as possible and sacrifice everybody else's rights for it. I, I, and I, that's the part that I can't stand. I mean, it, it's interesting. And, you know, again, let's not point out to people that wouldn't otherwise know that this stuff is protecting you maybe a little bit more than it should if you're doing bad things. And, you know, maybe we're not training law enforcement enough on other ways to go about doing this. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I would be surprised to find on the ground, like the actual detectives in cities or uh, FBI field agents, all of them are necessarily aware of how to go about this from a legal perspective. And it's not like they the FBI doesn't have tools at their disposal to get around like the device encryption anyway. Like Signal may be one thing, but we know that the FBI paid around a million dollars to get into the San Bernardino shooter's phone. We sure. know that they have bought um, Gray Keys, which is a device sold by a company that gets around uh, iPhone passcodes and, and the secure enclave. They have ways into this from a technological perspective, too. Um, that, that, that needs to be put forth out there a little bit more than just this argument of, gee, wouldn't it be nice if, if cops could pop signal? I mean, look, it, it would be nice, right? It would make things a little bit faster, but again, you're you're taking away my privacy rights too. So, yeah, that's not. I don't think that's a trade off that you, I, or anybody else should have to make. Just, I agree. 
So former U.S. NSA contractor Harold Martin was sentenced to nine years in federal prison Friday for storing decades worth of stolen government documents, much of which were classified in his home. It marks the end of a case that began in 2016 when federal agents raided Martin's property, sending shockwaves to the intelligence community. Martin was never linked to the Shatterbrokers Group, a suspected Russian intelligence operation that published NSA hacking tools, and his defense attorneys have described him as a compulsive hoarder. So, Greg, what's really going on here? Do you think this is the end? I, I don't. I mean, so he's going to go to jail, and that's fine. But here's why I don't think this is the end, and I'm sorry this is going to be a little bit conspiracy theory-ish. Oh, I like but, it. But it just it, it is what it is. So last Friday in court, they allowed him to you know have his final word. Basically, it's a legal term, I believe, is an allocution. Forgive me if that's not allocation, something like that. Basically, it's say your piece, my man. It is a multi-page document. This is all available uh, openly on Pacer, by the way, if you want to go spend the the $2 that you want to read it or find a way. I'm sure it's online by now, freely. Um, This speech that he gave essentially was wild it it, it was filled with these weird innuendos that only a certain amount of people who he worked with would ever understand and what i mean by that is first of all side note the first like four pages of it and I, I imagine in court, this was like the first five minutes of it. We're all like au revoir love letters to the women that he had dated throughout his life. And he writes, oh, good God. he writes extremely well. Like ex- it is very, very elegant. Like the dude is very clearly a very, very smart individual. But th- these these glowing gratuitous love letters and, and and what each woman in his life like brought out of him or made him feel at a certain time wild to read so that aside then why? It, it, well and and yeah well why is another question overall like whatever anyway then it goes into these clear like coded conversations with people that he worked with where he's basically like apologizing in some of them saying you were right on this but not on that and what's funny about it is that he led off the speech by saying judge none of this is classified i promise that all of this can be spoken like out and open on the record and then he proceeds to speak in code for 10 or 15 minutes or or pages like for instance when he starts to get into the parts where he talks about people that he worked with at the nsa he says for my people that work in a savage land off savage road if if you are not familiar with the NSA, you have no idea what he's getting at there. You just think he's sounding like uh, a, lunatic. a lunatic. Yeah. Working in a savage land off Savage Road. Savage, Maryland is the small town that is next to Fort Meade in Maryland where the NSA is located, including, I'm guessing, there has to be an entrance into Fort Meade off Savage Road. If you go up if you go up off the, the BW Parkway in Maryland. Yeah. 
you, you will see exits for Savage, Maryland, and then there are Savage Road, and suddenly you're like, I, I, like I'm guessing that you can see the fort from where this road is. I've been up in that area. Like, I knew exactly because I've been following this stuff. Sure. But it, it's clear that he's, and throughout this, it is little things it, throughout this allocation that um, they're, they're just hints. There are hints of him talking about, like, like he's dropping historical references to conversations that he had about certain projects time and time again. And going back to your initial question, I'll wrap this all up because I could talk about this for the entire podcast. <laughs> it's, it, it is legitimately – and why I say it's conspiracy theory-ish is there, there's hidden meetings. There are obvious hidden meanings in this speech, and I want to figure them out. Sure. But at, at the same time, why I don't think this story is over is saying, okay, this is, I, I ha ha, judge, wink, wink, this is classified all off the record, and then making all of these allusions to something. Like, you're trying to tell a story. You're not, you're, you're trying to tell a story, and you're, you're not putting closure into what happened here by doing what he did and, and saying those things out loud and doing what he spoke. This guy clearly wants to talk about what is happening and what has happened, but he doesn't want to talk about it openly, so he's doing it in some kind of weird code. So you think someone's going to crack that code and so, it's going to come up again? Well, it's, it's not like a, a National Treasure Da Vinci Code type thing, but there's enough in there that people that have been following this are going, okay, what are you really getting at here? Right. And they're going to poke around like... We're curious. It's it's the name of the podcast. Like so, just instantly, yeah, yeah. like I am curious when I see something like that. That what are you really getting at, man? So you're so, gonna take the weekend and, and, and work through it. And uh, work I don't. Back to us I, on Friday? Well, I don't necessarily think I could do it in a weekend. Like it's going to take <laughs> months to figure out what okay. it is that he's talking about. But yeah, I do want to figure out what he's talking about. Very cool. So credit monitoring firm Equifax has agreed to pay up to $700 million to settle investigations from U.S. regulators and state attorneys stemming from the 2017 data breach that comprised personal information about 147 million people. The penalty includes payments of $425 million to affected customers, $100 million in payments to 48 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. And also pay $100 million to resolve a federal investigation from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which examined the company in cooperation with the Federal Trade Commission. The deal is the largest settlement resulting from a data breach in U.S. history. So, Jen, have you signed up to get your cut of the settlement? Um, I feel like my data is worth more than a couple bucks, but thanks so much. What about $125 per person? Is that what it ends up being? Yes. No, so, if it's not, my dad is worth more than that. Okay. Better. Okay. Well, it's it's funny that you say that because there was uh, a big rush this week too that the uh, law firm or the company overseeing like the settlement payments put out their website uh, where you can actually s- sign up and figure out if your information was in there and if your information was in there, you're entitled to at least 125 bucks. I don't know when people would see that money, but hey, I signed up for it. I, I, I'm actually surprised that it's that amount of money. I mean, I would sign up for it just to see if I was breached and don't know it. Right. Um, but also there is a way, like, if, let's say as a result of, of the breach being announced, you signed up for identity theft, like money, you spent money to get identity theft monitoring, or you found that your information was stolen due to this because... 
um, you know, uh, you actually went through identity theft and you had to go through the legal process and, and pay out some money. There's ways to submit all of that paperwork and go, I will be recouped by this if, if you can prove all of that information. So, I just want to um, throw out there that um, when audio or not audiobooks, but ebooks had that lawsuit and they paid back um, consumers. Some amount of money. You're talking about the Apple thing. Right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Barnes and Nobles gave me more than $125 in gift cards, um, based on like being charged too much for for books. Okay. Um, so I feel like giving someone my social security number and personal information is worth more than that. I so I totally agree. I'm. But I I'm. It it caught like wildfire earlier this week when it was like, hey, come come get your check. Ridiculous. So police in the UK and the Netherlands have created a legal intervention campaign for first-time offenders accused of committing cybercrimes. The effort, called Hack Right, is aimed at people between the ages of 12 and 23 who may be skirting the law from behind their keyboard and not even realizing it. The experiment, which began last year, already has involved interactions with more than 400 young people in the UK. Instead of putting them in jail, police try to steer young folks in a more positive direction. We do this to get out and find them and get them into competing clubs before we have to investigate someone and lock them up, said Greg Francis, acting national prevent lead at the National Cybercrime Unit of the National Crime Agency. Greg, do you think this is a smart idea? I do, because I think there are a lot of kids that, you know, they spend their time on Reddit or they, they just spend their time behind computers figuring out how it works. And... They have no idea what the CFAA is, or they have no sure. idea that, oh, wait, I, I can't do what I just did. I, I just broke into whatever name website, like the back end, or I popped this person's Twitter account, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing all of this stuff. It just seems like, I'm, you know, I'm being a nuisance, but I, I'm being basically like a digital Bart Simpson. I'm not being like some hardened criminal. I don't think kids know that. Like they're just playing with computers. They're, they're just messing around. They're not doing – the lion's share of them aren't out like actively, maliciously committing crimes. So for them, the, the, the cops to go, okay, we get it. Let's, uh, let, let's try to you know, turn this into something good. Uh, I think it's it's a worthwhile effort. I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. sort of gloms on and tries to figure out how to implement this uh, in the U.S. as well. I think the age band, though, is kind of high. I, I, at 20, I was running a startup. Um, so I, I see 20, yes. 22, 23. I, I agree with you. Yeah. So 12, like 12 to 16. Okay. Like beyond, beyond. 18, yeah, yeah. Say, like, or, let's if, figure yeah, it out. If you're still in high school. Yeah. That's fine. If you're... Yeah, if you're 20, 21 years old, and you can't just use the, oh, this is just something I was doing. No. Like, okay, I agree with you there. If you're like 20 to 23, you should probably just be arrested and go through that process I if you're doing agree this with stuff. That, yeah. 
So stock trading service Robinhood sent an email to users Wednesday saying their user credentials were stored in an insecure format inside the company's systems. According to an email obtained by CyberScoop, the problem was discovered Monday night by the company's security team. We resolved this issue and after thorough review found no evidence that this information was accessed by anyone outside of our response team, the email reads. A Robinhood spokesperson told CyberScoop that the company has no evidence users' information was accessed or that the issue meant user information was breached. Jen, not great that a company that handles money and stock trading is also handling passwords this way. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. You know, so Robinhood has sort of got that reputation for being sort of the millennials stock trader. Um, you know, you're probably not going to find a lot of 40-year-olds right. um, using Robinhood. And I guess statistically, millennials care a little bit less about security than than say I do. Um, so really interesting, but I mean, if you're going to be a financial institution, you better be way better at this than that. Also not great that this happened a day after they announced just a massive funding round. Um, let me pull up, what were the numbers here on their funding round? Like I, I remember that as, cause I was the one who wrote this story. So I remember, being like, oh God, like th- this is a terrible piece of news that happened um, at just a very inopportune time. Yes, Series E funding round of $323 million, and yeah. they're storing passwords internally in clear text. Like just, it's just not great. It's just so bad. And, and you know, look, this, this wasn't, um, you know, on broadcast news this week, at least not that I saw – and but had this been um, I don't know Morgan Stanley or Scott Trade E Trade any whatever. of that stuff been all over the news right? right so it's just it's really interesting that these guys are kind of flying under the radar um, probably because of their target market but do better I yeah. mean there's no excuse for this yeah yeah I mean and and look it could be worse this isn't I mean because I know that you can buy uh, cryptocurrency on their platform too and. Nobody's cryptocurrency went out the door, so at least there's that. But yeah, uh, not, <laughs> not, not yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure that the security team has seen some incidents. Um, there's been an uptick in in some recon done now that we see they're, they're doing this. So I'm I'm sure there has been. So a contractor for the Russian military that is previously sanctioned for interfering in 2016 U.S. elections has developed Android malware that's used in highly targeted attacks which exploitate data using third-party applications. The malware, allegedly developed by St. Petersburg-based Special Technology Center, is extremely invasive. It can record a target's device screen while the user is unlocking it, capturing their PIN, and it abuses Android's accessibility features to harvest data from third-party services. This ability is something that Lookout researchers have never seen in the wild before, the team said. Lookout researchers told CyberScoop that the malware has been used to under development for years, and there's no reason to believe its developers have stopped fine-tuning it. So, Greg, not a lot of worry about this, right? I mean, if you don't think you're going to be targeted, I mean, if you have a threat (laughs) model where you think that the Russians might be trying to own your Android phone, then yeah, I would be worried. But, um, you know, it's really interesting in that, um, look, this is just the Russian military doing everything that they can to continue to be among the elite when it comes to hackers. This is 
Because Special Technology Center sounds like a government kind of entity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's clear that this is like their, I don't want to say it's like their DARPA, but I mean, yeah, it's clearly but a it's government. Like their DARPA, yeah, yeah. It's, it's clearly their, their <laughs> government. Um, yeah. Their government malware lab or something like that. Like it's almost like a national lab, I guess, that you could say. Yeah. And yeah, um, they will not only buy uh, malware uh, off, uh, you know, the, the third party markets and use it. They'll build their own and go after people as much as they like. So, yeah, um, not a lot to worry about. But then again, uh, you know, if you're in the D.C. area, you're pretty high up. You have an Android phone. You think the Russians might be coming after you? Well, pay attention. So Citrix, the VPN service used at many a Fortune 500 company, confirmed that scammers accessed their corporate network last year, and they came in through password spraying, an unsophisticated technique that leverages weak passwords. The ploy allowed the unidentified hackers to steal business files from a Citric network drive, along with a drive linked to its consulting practice. In his post-mortem on the breach, Citric CEO David Henshaw said his company has sought to improve authentication security, adding that he's focused on fostering a security culture at Citrix that provides prevention and also ensures that we detect and respond effectively to any future incidents. Jen, it's good to hear the CEO at least trying to sound like he takes security seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's um, more than a lot of people do. And he's certainly posturing himself that way. So it's a good thing. Yeah, it sounds like also that they could use uh, a crash course in zero trust model because I I think about the authenticity authentication security part and look citrix is a huge company i imagine they have a lot of employees spread out all over the place and if you have this password spraying um thing that that gets down to the user issue and it's just a a a good example of how zero trust being implemented and making sure that your perimeter um the perimeter that you're guarding and the perimeters that have fallen away really are protected because your user base and their password strength or lack thereof is your perimeter. This is a shining example of that. So um, yeah, I hope that they figure out ways to improve that authentication security. And I bet that uh, David Henshaw has heard a lot about zero trust in the six months since this breach. And given that he's talking about it, I bet he implements something. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm sure that all of that has been taken care of or then the next time that we see Citrix on these pages, I'm not sure that CEO David Henshaw is going to be attached (laughs) to them if you get my drift. So there really wasn't any funding news. Jen, you were right this week in that everybody seems to be on their yachts out having fun. Um, So we will just jump right into our interview with Ophir Gathan. Um, talking about Dust Identity and all the work that he's doing around supply chain security uh, combined with synthetic diamonds. Really, really interesting interview. Check it out. Okay, now we are talking with Ophir Gathan, the co-founder and CEO of Dust Identity. Really appreciate you uh, hopping aboard. Uh, we were unaware of your company up until about a week and a half ago and saw that you got uh, a funding round and dove into what your company actually does. And it's extremely, extremely interesting. Oh, thank you. Uh, happy to be here. So for those that are unaware of what Dust Identity does, can you explain uh, exactly what you do? 
Sure. So uh, what we do, uh, we're a supply chain security company. And what we do is that we put um, engineered diamonds on top of things in order to give them a unique and clonable identity. Essentially, what we wanted to do is, is create uh, biometrics without the bio uh, to massively produce objects in the context of being able to verify those, those items as they move in the supply chain. Um, at the end of the day, when you're thinking of what does it mean to trust something that you're holding in your hand, it really means to be able to associate data uh, and trust that the data is actually related to that object. Uh, and for that, we needed to create a, a physical anchor or an anchor on the physical object such that we can reference that data. So how did you come up with the idea to use diamonds? Yeah, so, so we actually, uh, so we were on the contract with DARPA um, several years ago, and uh, that's when we started to understand that there are some challenges in supply chain security. Um, the context for us initially was around being able to do functional testing. So using um, our uh, certain capabilities that we develop about sensing very small magnetic fields uh, using uh, diamonds. Um, and uh, the, the context, again, it was around trying to see if we can identify uh, electronic components and see that they are operating the way that they should be. Um, but through the work of, of talking to different stakeholders in that ecosystem, especially around uh, secure supply chains, we understood that there's a significantly broader problem if you take the asset owner point of view. So those that are in charge of defense platforms, uh, critical infrastructure, data centers, they're actually concerned about everything that goes into those environments or goes into those assets. And what they're lacking is, is the ability to reference the supply chain data with the things that they're receiving. Uh, so we thought, you know, maybe we can just create that trusted physical identity layer and use that to tap or to connect data to the object. So from an actual operational perspective, uh, how can you explain a little bit how, did this, how this works? What exactly are you doing with the gemstones sure. and, and how does that help, um, you know, keep the security of the supply chain intact? Absolutely. So, so we, um, so we engineered uh, diamonds uh, that are lab-grown diamonds, or or synthetic diamonds, or man-made diamonds, um, to have some some unique properties. There's a quantum defect that we install inside the diamonds. Those diamonds are uh, hundreds or tens of uh, nanometers in size, so very very small, the size of uh, proteins, uh, smaller than the size of human cells. Uh, we put hundreds or thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of uh, diamonds using a spray coating on an object. And that gives us the ability to create that unclonable fingerprint. Uh, then we have a scanning device. You can think of what we're doing is like a credit card. Uh, the diamonds on the objects create, creates a credit card, creates a secure credit card. Then we have a scanner that is like a point of sale uh, device. And then we have a cloud service that is serving as the authentication engine. And essentially what we're doing is that we are operating like a clearinghouse and we're verifying um, the identity of that object that has the diamond dust in the context of who's act actually is trying to verify it. Uh, we have to uh, make sure that the information that we're providing to different stakeholders is appropriate uh, from a, a security standpoint, you know, making sure that there's no IP leakage because certain information that can be collected on the on the supply chain can be quite sensitive and we want to make sure that we can tailor what information is being consumed by whom. 
So how did you settle on using gemstones? Because, I mean, this is an extremely novel technology. I don't remember hearing anything like this in, in terms of anything to do with supply chain security. So uh, we're really interested yeah. in hearing how this idea came to fruition. So, so again, I, th- I think that what we, we saw is that um, there's a lot of great effort that is being done to enhance the security of um, electronic components at the design level. So including uh, uh, trusted modules or, or security features that are embedded into the, uh, to the, the die itself or to the circuit board itself. But what we found is that if you're thinking of generally the, the, the problem that people have, not in all places you'll be able to consume those, uh, that security in the value chain. Uh, there's no interest by a device maker, for example, to have uh, a third-party logistic partner uh, coming in and start powering um, routers just to be able to verify their right. authenticity. Um, so we needed to create some kind of a parallel um, uh, method to authenticate and verify objects and actually to use it as a, again, to add an anchor to ver- to reference information too, because information is not just created at birth. Uh, you have information that relates to the manufacturing, and then you will have information that relates to how things are, um, the, the transportation uh, channels or distribution channels. And then you may have information is going to be collected during operation. So let's say a field service engineer need to be able to uh, service a CT machine in a hospital. How can we make sure that they can not only verify, but get the appropriate information such that that installation can be uh, as efficient as possible and as secure as possible? So providing the means even for the field service operator to be able to, for example, put dust on a screw such that they can have a temper evident uh, component on the installation. These are the things that we sort of like wanted to make sure that we can capture. Um, Why using diamonds? Um, again, uh, we were uh, sort of like biased initially to, to the use of diamonds because of the quantum defects that we can install, the capabilities that okay. we can have. Um, when we figured out that there is, you know, the, the ability or the way that we're creating those fingerprints is by looking at uh, the orientation information of individual diamonds. So we're not looking at how diamonds, the diamond crystals reflect light, um, but we're looking at what is the orientation of that quantum defect inside the diamond? And that tells us what the orientation of the diamond is. And we can we develop a technique that allows us to do it uh, very, very quickly. Um, and, and that's sort of like maybe one of the fundamentals that you need to have. You need to have a solution that is can create uh, a unique identity for things that will have a large serialization space. Uh, so you can just uh, generate those numbers uh, randomly or very quickly or without a lot of uh, hassle. Uh, it has to be very secure. It has to have a. Uh, it needs to be able to support the highest level of security that the most uh, concerned customers of a device maker may have. Uh, typically, a government customer. Um, uh, so security is very important, but it has to be agile. It has to be something that will be very quick to be able to authenticate. So the time that it takes to authentication, the time that it will take us to provide data. Uh, that relates to that authentication has to be very quick and it has to be something that can be uh, elastic or dynamically deployed. Uh, we cannot make the assumption that the world will start, uh, everybody's going to start using dust on day one. Uh, so we need to be able to support use cases where 
there is a rollout that is uh, depending on the priorities of the customer organization where they may want to be able to uh, protect specific nodes in the supply chain on day one and then roll it out at scale at different Who stages. Who is your main customer? Is it the device manufacturers or is it the end user? So um, we're actually pretty agnostic to uh, who wants to start using it in the value chain. Uh, what we see is that there's uh, very often instances where the customer organization is not the device maker, but one of their customers is, is driving this and they want to make sure that they have uh, better capabilities that are tailored into uh, their needs. Um, typically, it comes in with additional uh, use cases that they have in uh, other manufacturing uh, environments, not just electronics. Uh, additive manufacturing is an example. Uh, being able to verify uh, consumables, let's say a, a filter um, that goes into uh, even a refrigerator uh, is something that people are interested in verifying today. Um, so it's, it's really about enabling and empowering the customer organization, no matter what their role is in the value chain, to have the capability to start tagging things and referencing data to them. It can be a, a, a logistics company that is interested in enhancing their uh, seals. So the seals that are in shipping containers uh, can be swapped in transit. Um, there's an interest to be able to verify them with uh, better means. Uh, it could be a contract manufacturer that wants to have an added uh, uh, value uh, service or a differentiator that will be able to allow them to communicate that they're accountable and trustworthy. Uh, today, they have to compete on price with uh, actors that are not necessarily obeying by all the rules. Uh, we see uh, brands, uh, for example, in the luxury space that are interested in making sure that they have a way to know that they're uh, sustainable, uh, their supply chain is sustainable, and they can communicate that to both authorities and their uh, end consumer. So that's really interesting. Uh, you know, you were talking about being uh, vendor agnostic and working with all of these different companies. But do you look at this product as something that's more geared toward government clients or something that is strictly a commercial security product? Uh, we're actually, so our thesis is that, yes, we're interested in, in helping uh, enhance the security of uh, maybe the most critical supply chains that you can think of, whether it's defense platforms or critical infrastructure. So yes, there's, there's a government component here, but um, our thesis is that in order to solve those problems, you need to solve the commercial challenge. And the commercial challenge has multiple or maybe different symptoms of the same problem of identity, those, the, that physical identity challenge. Uh, the symptoms are might be different from, a, it could be a security uh, concern uh, that is riding on a quality concern or reliability concern. Uh, a lot of people are, are um, have limited information about where things are sourced and that can impact the uptime or the reliability of specific uh, systems. So even if they don't have uh, today uh, the deepest concern about a nation state actor that is trying to manipulate their uh, infrastructure, their uh, uh, systems, they will be significantly concerned about uh, the quality aspect of not knowing where things are coming from. And we uh, believe that we should be able to solve both of them because if you have a large uh, gray market of counterfeit parts and um, actors that are trying to circumvent uh, the traditional supply chains, you introduce a, a very uh, wide range of vulnerabilities in your value chain because you're you're circumventing all the safeguards that are currently in place. So when you go and, and, and pitch your product to potential customers, 
what other types of products are you up against? What else are they looking at when they choose to go with you or, or I guess not go with you? Um, so um, I, I think that in many cases they are either coming from uh, looking at use cases where there are simply no solutions or no known solutions that are um, have the right economics, have the right scale, have the right security. Uh, so that, as an example, is identifying electronic components on circuit boards, making sure that you can do that without uh, alerting all the stakeholders that you have a solution, uh, a security measure, um, making sure that you could identify things without uh, necessarily revealing who's the entity that owns uh, specific uh, boards or components. So there's a lot of concern about uh, revealing how your supply chain, uh, you know, passive re- uh, passive exposure or passive transparency of the supply chain. So revealing who your your sources are um, is something that you want to be able to control. There's deep concern about um, when you're thinking of uh, establishing a transparent supply chain, what does it mean transparency? You want to make sure that the information that propagate uh, between the stakeholders has some control over. Um, Most of the solutions today don't uh, necessarily offer that very easily. If you think of QR codes or barcodes or RFIDs, they tend to have some kind of a, a permanent reference, a label, uh, some kind of a brand that is associated uh, associated with with those uh, with those tags, um, and they typically are not secure. So if you have a barcode on an object, um, and you're using that to anchor that specific object to, for example, a blockchain, I think that people realize today that this is not secure enough. There's no way for us to know that. The instant that is recorded on, as an example, the blockchain is is related to that uh, specific physical object. Same thing goes with RFIDs. Um, more than eighty percent of the RFIDs that are currently out in the in the field are completely not secure. So somebody can just replicate them uh, very easily. And if you cannot really uh, ensure the integrity of that anchor, that that interface between the digital and physical domain then there is an open question about can you trust the data or can you trust the objects? Uh, so far, um, we've been asked to enhance uh, measures as well. So it could be that um, there are solutions today that are being deployed at the device level, for example, and they would just want us to come in and provide additional enhancement on top of existing measures. So your company has been around for uh, a while, but I would say over the past... 12 to 18 months, at least in you know relative terms, the supply chain has been a big topic of conversation. Have you seen an uptick in business due to the sort of uptick in interest around the supply chain uh, or things like you know Absolutely. the the US fighting with Huawei or like Bloomberg's big hack story? Have things like that sort of generated more interest in your business? I, I think that it, 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 it brought a lot of awareness uh, to some of the challenges that there is a, a, maybe a smaller community uh, that was focusing on solving previously. And I'm actually quite encouraged by that because um, one of the challenges that uh, we had when we started to work on this uh, several years ago is that uh, there's a tendency by different stakeholders to really... Um, they have certain challenges in discussing vulnerabilities if those vulnerabilities don't have okay. a solution. 
Uh, there's if you think of uh, of the concerns of you know if there's if there is a vulnerability on for example a cybersecurity vulnerability, um, would you let the public know immediately? Actually, no. Uh, the process that is currently being done is that there is a period where the vendor or the stakeholder that has the source code or that has the vulnerability uh, will be able to respond and correct and fix uh, and, and, and close that gap. Uh, and then you can go through the process of notification of the public. Uh, in areas around supply chain security on the physical side, uh, it's much more challenging because even if you fix the vulnerability and you have, let's say, a better, a more secure RFID tag, you already have items that are in deployment. You cannot just do a refresh and, and update their, their solution. So I think that a lot of people were concerned about talking about the problem without having a very clear understanding on what are the things that we can do today uh, in order to drive uh, better security, where the realization is that we need to, it's, it's very important to understand how the supply chain look like. So, so uh, visualization of the supply chain. There's a lot of software tools that are available today um, to, to really understand who are the suppliers, where they're coming from. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you don't connect that information to what is actually moving in the, in the value chain, uh, people realize that there are gaps there uh, that need to be solved. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a minute because you bring up something that I thought was really interesting just about your product overall. So much of security in general when it comes to technology is software-based. Uh, when did the light bulb go off for you to move toward a hardware-based product or something that necessarily isn't primarily rooted in code? So it, 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 it came from conversations that we had with stakeholders that um, – had challenges or gaps in their capabilities. Uh, one of them is, uh, as an example, um, in certain instances, there is a pretty aggressive uh, schedule of tests that you do to an article to certify it, uh, whether it's mechanical testing or functional testing of the electronics or having the uh, circuit board being x-ray and generating a terabyte of, of data that... Uh, uh, indicates that this is a trustworthy article. Um, the question was, uh, you spend all that time, and sometimes you know these uh, tests can take multiple tens of hours to, to accumulate. You have a lot of data, and the question is how that data propagates in, in the value chain. How can we make sure that when the uh, recipient of the article uh, is able to uh, extract the information, extract the derivative of that information. Maybe it's a report that will tell them this is, you know, thumbs up, you can use it. Uh, but they need that information and they need that information quickly. They cannot, there's a lot of loss today in recertification and uh, reauthentication of things because the test data is just not moving together with the, uh, with the articles. So when we first heard about it, um, we thought that we are going to be uh, providing some test information as, okay. as a, you know, functional testing. But then we realized that there's no way for us to anchor that information into the article. And if somebody swaps the article, then our test data has actually created a tremendous vulnerability because there's an assumption of trust, but it's not really secure if you don't have that anchoring. Uh, so we said, you know, why don't we try to solve that first? And that's what we did. So we like to end um, our interviews on a random question. And so for you, what do you wish you had more time for? Uh, more time for? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, um, I, I, 
I, I, I don't have a good answer because it's all over the map. Um, uh, over the last six months since we came out of stealth, we came out of stealth in November, um, and it's been just not your business, but like just in general, like your your personal life, or you wish you had more time to golf or <laughs> yeah, yeah. unicorn figurines or whatever. <laughs> so, so I, I think that in in, in general. Um, I really love what I do, uh, and um, I always feel like we don't have enough time to be able to uh, accomplish everything that we want to be able to accomplish on the professional side. And on top of that, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm also a dad, and 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 uh, I feel you there. Husband, and um, I want to make sure that there's an opportunity for me to spend time with the family. I'm, I'm traveling quite a bit. Uh, uh, recently, and and it's about trying to to make the balance between the 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 life and you know the personal life and and what we do um, on the day to day. This is a general problem for I think any any co-founder or any CEO. Um, if I had more time, I, yes, I, I wish that there were more hours in the day, but. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't have a good answer to us. Yes. No, the, the, the family people. stuff, I, I totally feel you in that regard. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not, we're not necessarily running a startup, but we're, we're always working hard. And I absolutely, you know, it, achieving that balance is, is something that is, you know, easier said than done. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think that it's the problem of uh, modern professionals is that, um, what we're trying to achieve is is always very aggressive, and um, you don't want to. Uh, you're willing to sacrifice, but you not necessarily want the, your family to to take that sacrifice. So you're always trying to balance, and uh, that's the I think the 21st century. Okay, Afir, really appreciate you hopping aboard and telling us uh, a little bit more uh, about us, and look forward to seeing how the company grows in the future. Sure thing. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks again to Afir for joining us. Really interesting conversation, but I I wish he had more on his mind than just, you know, the the, the business. Yeah. But. Well, what do you wish you had more time for? Just about anything at this point, because I am also between editing. I, I mean, that's where I was talking to him. Uh, I, I feel uh, for him in that, you know, you have this startup and then you have dad life and there really aren't any more hours in a day. So what would I be doing or what don't I have time for that I wish I had time for? Sleep, I, I would say. Fair enough. Yeah. I Definitely sleep. I mean, if, yeah, if I was not to working work today. Answer. I feel like you should think of some random thing to start collecting and always say that you wish you had more time for something, you know, like collect turtle statues. That is very random. That That is no, definitely like, at the I heart. That's what I feel like would make you um, a little bit more interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be collecting turtle statues anytime soon. My turtle collecting days were like around seven years old when I was in the Ninja Turtles. So I think that that door shut for the rest of my life. You don't have a guest room full of Ninja Turtles, do you? No. Okay. No, I've, I've parted with them. Absolutely <laughs> have parted with sure. them. So. All right, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Stay curious.